Good to see all y'all. I was doing a debate in April with a man by the name of Bart Erdman. He is a professor at the University of North Carolina. He's got about four, I think five maybe now, New York Times bestsellers. And as I was debating him, sometimes you do wonder, what is it that you're actually accomplishing here? Insofar as, do I think that I'm going to convert Bart Ehrman and bring him back to a solid belief in the Bible and the God of the Bible, etc.? And you're wondering all along the way, is this what God wants me to do? Is this how God wants me to spend my time? Is this something that is valuable, that is going to help people do what they're trying to do in bring those young people that they are ministering to to a solid personal faith in God. Well, two interactions that I had recently about the debate. One, I was preaching in Kentucky and a young man came up to me and he was talking to me about how he had had struggles with his faith and he really didn't know if he was going to uh, be a believer and continue in his faith or if he was going to decide to go to unbelief and he said he watched one of our debates and he said it was at that point he decided this is the faith and this is what I want to do. I got an email from a girl about four days before I came down here and she said hey I'm in Bart Ehrman's class every day. And it's supposed to be a class on New Testament, but what he spends most of his time doing is explaining to us how the Bible can't be the Word of God and how it's full of errors and how it's full of mistakes. She said, I heard that you were in a debate with him. Can you send me that debate? And I said, sure, hey, send her the debate and said, if you've got any specific questions about stuff, I'll be more than happy to help you because I've been through all of Bart Ehrman's stuff, a lot of it three or four or five or six times. And she said, well, I'll, I'll certainly be taking you up on it. Now here's what I find very interesting about the whole debate type idea. In April, we had an estimated 60 to 80,000 people watching that debate when it occurred that night. It started about 6.30, went to about 8.30 or 9 or so. We had about 60,000 to 80,000 people watching it. We put it up on YouTube, about 10,000 people watched it. There we have had a DVD out now for two or three months. Probably 10 to 15,000 people have watched it there. We estimate that about 100,000 people have seen that debate. Now here's what's so interesting to me about that. 100,000 people. 60,000 of them watching it, watching it live. Now when's the last time anything like a speech or something that was being projected on the internet or being filmed, etc., was watched by 60 to 80,000 people, many of them New Testament Christians, many of them belonging to the church. And what I mean by this is, when we announced they were having a debate, uh, venue will hold about 1,700 people. We had about 1,550 people there that night to watch it live in person. What I'm trying to get at here is this topic is interesting to people. I'll tell you why it's interesting to people. I think you know because you guys are on the ground floor of this, and as I continue through this, you're going to see your youth groups, I think, reflected in what I say. But it's interesting to people because 20 years ago, it wasn't. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, Jerry Elder, I was talking to David Chen. You know, David said... Uh, 
said, you know, adolescents, they're changing all the time, and you can take a picture of yourself, and a year later you can take your picture of yourself, and you look about the same. Well, you can take a picture of Jerry Elder, and 35 years later, he looks exactly the same. He looks exactly like I remember him looking when I was 15 years old. Jerry Elder has been a part of my life since I was nine years old, as I recall. I was going to Horizons, and you couldn't get in Horizons until you were 10, and my two older brothers were going, and I didn't have any clothes, and they said, oh, you can stay if you got any clothes, and Jerry said, well, I'll go get you some and bring them back if you want to stay, and so that was my first really exciting experience with Jerry, who helped me out stay at Horizons, but anyway, he's looked the exact same for the last... I don't know, 72 years? I think, he's 90, I think he's 97 now. But When I was growing up in Columbia, Tennessee with Jerry Elder and the youth groups there, there were several rather large youth groups. You had the Graymere Youth Group that had probably 40, 50, 60. You had West 7th that had 30, 40, 50. You had uh, several of them there. We ran in a circle of about 100 faithful active Christians there. And I'm 37 now. That would have been, you know, looking at 20, 22 years ago or so. If you had asked us, do you know someone who is an atheist? Well, I think you might have had to define the word for me. Because I was not even familiar with the concept of a person who doesn't believe in God. Didn't even register anywhere on my radar. It just was not there. In fact, probably less than one of us would have known, yes, I know what an atheist is, and I know someone who is an atheist. Now, that was 20 years ago. 20 years ago is not that long. It doesn't feel like that long anyway. And you think, okay, 20 years ago, out of 100 people in not a big city, but not small, you know, as far as it was just below Nashville, etc., nobody was even registering unbelief. Now, fast forward 20 years, I'm at Maywood Christian Camp, and I've got a group of 18 to, uh, 15 to 18 year olds. I've got 42 of them. I say, how many of you know someone who's an atheist? 32 of them say it. We do. Next year, out of 50 of them, how many of you know someone who's an atheist? 40 of them say they do. Next year, out of 52, I think 42 or 43 or 4 said they knew someone who was an atheist. You're looking at uh, well over 80% of these people. Uh, one year while I was at Baywood Christian Camp, one of the young men on the front after I asked that question came up to me afterward and said, I am. I'm an atheist. I don't really believe in God. I don't really believe in the Bible and here's why. And he wanted to talk all about it. We had several discussions there all about it. There's a reason why we don't talk about idolatry. Have you ever heard a really good, hard-hitting, powerful lesson on idolatry? On, hey, don't go out into the woods and chop down a tree and burn half of it in your house for firewood and take the other half and build a statue and put it in the corner of your house and bow down to it. That's not a good idea. You, you ever heard a real just strong lesson on that? You know what? David Shannon's given a lot of lessons. I've never heard him do one on idolatry. I'm pretty hacked off about it, really. I'd like to see him get into that subject because it's just not something I... You know why you don't hear lessons on idolatry? <clears throat> It's not on the radar as far as people in the United States of America aren't idol worshipers. Now, if you were to go to Galatians chapter 5 and see how covetousness is equated with idolatry, you might have a lesson going on there. But that's not what necessarily we're talking about insofar as you don't preach on idolatry because people don't have a problem 
with idolatry. You know, at least this is actually, you're going to have to preach on this some later, but polygamy. You don't hear very many lessons on polygamy whatsoever, and especially you haven't for the past 10, 15, 20 years. You know why? Because in the United States of America, polygamy has been, polygamy has been illegal, outlawed, and most people haven't even ever had a problem with it. There's a reason why, if you were to look 20 years ago, you would not have heard many lessons on, we know there's a God because, and then give the reasons why we know there's a God. There's a reason why 20, 25, 30 years ago, you would not have had to hear the Bible's the inspired word of God because it contains and has in it superhuman, supernatural traits, and here they are, predictive prophecy, scientific foreknowledge, go down the list. You didn't have to preach those lessons. You didn't have to teach your kids that. In fact, if you had said, hey, we're going to get a debate going with a guy who doesn't believe that there's a God and a guy who does, people would have been like, what? Okay, whatever, but that's not really all that exciting. It's not really all that interesting because we all believe there's a God. We don't now. We all don't believe there's a God. And what I mean by we all is if you were to take a sampling of any group that I have seen in the past 10 years of young people from 15 to 18, if it's at a Christian school, if it's in a youth group, if it's in a, and you were to really get their opinion on some of the core issues of Christianity, do you know that there's a God? He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. First John chapter five says, and by this we know that we are children of God can you say that you know there's a God? I think in a sampling of any one of our youth groups, there would be kids in that group that would say, well, I, I think there might be. It probably is, but I'm, I'm just not sure. If you were to say, do you know Jesus Christ rose from the grave? Do you know? Will you say, or more importantly, will you stand up and defend and live the idea <laughs> that the Bible is God's Word. Well, you see, what we're running into now is those core beliefs are now having to be what we would say articulated and matriculated into our young people because they are getting so much from the culture that says you can't know that stuff you are not sure about that. You have doubts about that, and you know you do, except. And as we're thinking about this, we've got to ask ourselves, what are we trying to do? You know, I thought David's idea there was great. When he said, okay, if you've got somebody coming in your youth group at sixth grade, and you've got them leaving at 18, what do you envision them being when they leave what do you envision them being able to lay their life on the line saying, I know this? You know, there's a girl at UNA, and Josh Webster was telling me about this. Said she came to the student center, UNA Christian Student Center, there one, I guess it was one evening, and said she was just fired up. She was just angry. And Josh was asking her why she was angry, or, or Danny was, Danny Pettis, who works with him. And she said, well, one of my professors stood up today in class and said, there is no God, and what we're going to do for the rest of this semester is I'm going to give you the evidence that there's not one. 
And I want any of you who think that there is a God to stand up. And I want you to try to defend that belief, and I want you to tell us why you think that there is a God. So anybody in here calls himself a Christian or believes that there's a God, I want you to stand up. And this girl stood up. And when she was telling the guys there at the student center why she was angry, she wasn't telling them she was angry because of the professor. Although that is one reason why she should be. She was telling them she was angry because she was looking around that class knowing that there were four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people in that class who came to the student center who called themselves Christians but who didn't have the courage to stand up and say, I know there's a God and I won't be bullied by you trying to explain that there's not. You know, it's not that we want them to know this information, although we do. We want them to be willing to defend this information. And there is a big difference between knowing it and being willing to put yourself on the line for it. Now, you know, lots of times somebody comes up to me, in fact, oh, I don't know, I guess it's two days ago, I don't know exactly where I was, I was speaking in this little lady came up to me, she was probably, oh, she's probably about 65, and she got this little grin on her face, and she said, can I ask you a personal question? And I was like, uh, yeah. She said, how old are you? I said, 37, what do you weigh? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, that's not, that's not, what, uh, that's not what I said. Uh, she got this little look, and it's a little look I get all the time, she says, uh, can, I, can I ask you a question? Like, she's really going to ask me something that is it's kind of you know, under the table, you might not want a lot of people... She said, why do y'all call yourself apologetic friends? And I said, that's a great question. Why in the world would we call ourselves apologetic friends? And I explained to her that if you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. And I explained to her that that Greek word right there, always be ready to give a defense. That word defense is the word apologia in Greek, and it means a verbal or written defense of something that you believe. And you guys are probably familiar with the early apologists like Justin Martyr and some of those guys. When they were showing up on the scene as Christian, the Roman government was saying, Christianity is terrible. In fact, Tacitus calls it a deadly superstition that had broken out in Palestine and had been so contagious it came all the way to Rome where every vile and evil thing resides, he said. And Christianity is just making a mess of things. In fact, you know, the early Christians, they were accused of being cannibals. They were accused of being incestuous. They were accused of having all kinds of problems because on the first day of the week, they drank somebody's blood and ate somebody's flesh. And so some of the Roman religious cults actually did kill people and eat them and drink their blood, etc. And so they were accusing the Christians of that. And these early Christian apologists were saying, hold on, no, that's not what we do. You're misunderstanding. Let me tell you what we actually are. That is just a symbolic meal that represents the death of our Savior Jesus Christ. That blood is just grape juice. That bread is not actually somebody's flesh. We are not camels. Oh, we're not incestuous. When we say Brother Johnson and Sister Johnson, what we mean is we are all children of God. We're not biological brothers and sisters. And so we're defending our right to say what we say because what we say is correct. 
Now, what we have to instill in our young people is that, and here's what I see happening so much. We just are crossing our fingers and wringing our hands and hoping that if we can just send them out and they will just keep the shred of faith that they've been able to maintain through high school, if they can just keep it on through college, then they'll be all right. If they can just hang on to what little they've got, we're just afraid, aren't we, that we're going to lose them to the unbelieving world. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. And notice that next part about that verse. Not a spirit of fear, but of power and of sound mind. You see, you know what our kids are told, don't you? About people who believe in God, people who believe in the Bible, people who think that the world is only six to 10,000 years old and that dinosaurs can somehow fit into the Bible and that the Bible somehow provides some type of scientific answers. Well, you know what they're told. They're told that all the smart people have left that idea behind years and years ago. And you know what? It looks like that to our young people sometimes because do you understand that 80% of all the professors in universities today in the United States of America are hard-nosed atheists? Now, I'm not talking about you have your belief, I'll have mine. I'm talking about people who are dyed in the wool unbelievers who make it their mission to instruct the kids who come into their classes that there is no God. That's 80%. Do you understand how biasedly that does not reflect the actual population of the United States of America? What I mean by that is, actually in the United States, excuse me, <clears throat> there are about 330 million people. Only about 25 million or so of those are hard-nosed atheists, people who would say, I don't believe that there's a God. So that's less than 10% of all of the people in the United States of America are actually atheists. And yet 80% of our college professors are atheists. So what does it look like all the smart people are believing? It looks like to our young people that we're sending to the mouth of the lion here at the state universities that, yeah, all the smart people do believe this. And when a professor who has a Ph.D. and more letters behind his name than you can count stands up and extrapolates how the force of gravity can do this and this and this and then says, and by the way, if you believe that there's a God... Well, you listen to Richard Dawkins. What Dawkins says is people who don't believe in evolution are either stupid, insane, ignorant, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that last one, he said. You see, all the smart people, the most brilliant people, the best thinkers, the ones who are doing the History Channel curiosity, and I was flipping through the channels last night, and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was on, and he was explaining how all of these supernovas happen and all of this stuff, and he seemed so smart. And boy, we're just hoping that our poor little kids will go into that class and make it by with a B so that they can get their grades and then so they can get out and hopefully hadn't lost their faith. I mean, is that what you want? You want kids that are, that are cowering to these people who are trying to intellectually bully them and hoping that they just scrape by? Or do you want a person who has been forewarned and educated in a way that they can say, you know, Mr. Thompson, I understand that you might have that belief. I don't think it's correct, and here's why. 
and in a respectful, kind way, firmly and boldly defend their faith. Okay, that's what we all want. Now, how are you going to get that? Well, the only possible way that you're ever going to get that is if you are willing to take the challenge that Peter gives you personally. And here's what I mean by that. When David Shannon said, you have to be willing to let kids ask the questions. You do. And there are some questions that are going to come at you, and you're not going to have an idea how to answer them. In fact, I was working at AP probably for three years or so, and boom, I ran into a wall. I started reading some stuff on atheistic pages, and one guy said, you know, Jesus wasn't original at all. He actually just copied stuff that other people had uh, said or written. Confucius said, do not do to others what you don't want done to you. Jesus just tweaked it a little bit and said, do it to others as you want them to do to you. And Jesus is just a conglomeration of other wisdom teachers before. In fact, if you look at the myths and legends of other religions, what you find is that there are dozens and dozens of crucified Savior gods who came to save the world. And I saw these references to these books, and I ordered the books, and sure enough, I mean, it looked like Jesus' story was very similar to lots of other stories, and several of the first century, second century early apologists had mentioned stuff about Jesus being similar to other people, and I thought, whoa, what do you do with this? I mean, I had been out of school, I was 25 years old, and I was running up against one of the atheist arguments that said, Jesus just copied stuff, he's not original, and I was stunned. And I'll tell you what I did. Threw up my hand said, I don't have an answer, I guess I'm going to give it up. You think that's what I'm doing? <laughs> I don't think that's what you do. And it's not what we need to prepare our kids to do. Is it going to be the case that they're going to run into stuff that they've never heard in their life? Yeah. What do we need to explain to them? If Christianity is true, and if it is a philosophy, religion based on sound mind, then that means if we prepare them to think properly and challenge themselves with the questions, they will come out with the right answers. In three years, as I was into AP, I said, oh no, what are we going to do with this? I've never seen anything like it, so I'm going to find everything that I can on this subject. And I did. Started finding every, I ordered every single book that any atheist had ever written on this subject. I watched every uh, video that I could find. I read every single article, and I got, oh, you know, they said that this guy was crucified. They said that Krishna was crucified. No, he wasn't. He was shot with an arrow, and it happened to stick into a tree, and they called that crucifixion. They said this guy was resurrected. No, he wasn't. He was ripped into all kinds of tiny little pieces and thrown all across Egypt, Osiris. And then when they collected his pieces, he was still only down. All the similarities that they claimed were so very close to Jesus weren't close to Jesus at all. And then when you look at any documentation for the lives of any of these crucified Savior gods, there was no documentation for anything like that. Oh, and then when you got into Luke and it said that the prophets had been predicting the Messiah since the beginning of, found that, of the foundation of the world, and you start thinking, oh, if the prophets are predicting that a Messiah is going to come from the beginning of the foundation of the world, 
And Melchizedek was a prophet, a priest of the Most High God, and he was speaking before Abraham was on the scene and the Old Testament wasn't even written at that time. Then you start seeing all the pieces fall together, and then when you get to the New Testament, and the Bible says that Jesus is the conglomeration of all truth and wisdom in the world. Well, what would you expect? Would you expect some little pieces of other cultures to have pieces of truth and wisdom that they might have thrown out? That Jesus brought it all together and left out all of the junk that wasn't truth and wisdom? Yeah, the picture fits perfectly. But boy, when I was 25 and I was up against these atheist writers who were 60, 70 years old and they had been writing this stuff for 40 years and throwing it out like they knew what they were talking about, I was having a problem. Now let me tell you. 17-year-old goes off to State University of West Virginia. They call him up. His preacher does when he calls us. His preacher says, uh, look, this guy was one of our finest. Said, if you wanted anybody to deliver a talk, this guy could do it. If you wanted anybody to lead a prayer, if you were to look at the life of anybody, this young 17-year-old, he was what we would call a very strong Christian. He goes to a state university an hour away from his home and sits in a class called Comparative Religions. And in Comparative Religions, he comes back after a single semester and he throws on his preacher's desk a list of 70 alleged Bible contradictions. And he says, we don't have an answer for these. My professor explained to me that the Bible is wrong. I've never seen these explained. I've never seen an answer to these. I won't be back to church. And with that, he walks out the church building door and never darkens it again. Could that scenario have been different? You know, that preacher called us and said, hey, we've got a list of these 70 alleged contradictions. Can you guys deal with them? We said, oh, yes, yeah, send them to us. We answered them all in about two weeks, posted the articles on our website. We've got them now, and we do that on a regular basis. What if, what if that kid had walked into that class and that professor had rolled out these 70 alleged contradictions, and that student politely raised his hand and said, I, I understand that you believe that. I would respectfully disagree, but could you show me which one of those you think is the strongest? Which one of those alleged contradictions do you believe makes your case the best? Now, when that professor picks one out and the student can go and look for an answer to that one alleged contradiction and then say, do you know I've been doing some research on that and I found that there's really actually an answer for that and here it is. Well, if that's his strongest and you deal with that, then the other 69 are going to be seen for what they are. What if his youth worker had said, now before you go, you're going to have your faith challenged. They're going to say that there's not a God because the Big Bang is actually scientifically accurate. They're going to say that the Bible doesn't work right because there are all kinds of contradictions in it. Now let's look at how you can work through contradictions yourself. And what if you had had a class with that young West Virginian when he was 15, 16, and 17 and said, this is going to come at you. Don't be surprised when it does. Don't be scared when it does. You tackle it with tenacity and bravery and courage, and you deal with it, and then you stand up and defend what you dealt with. Now, doesn't that sound like a much better project than, we just hope that they make it through. We, we sure hope that they keep the shred of faith that they got. What if you equip them to be powerful defenders of the truth, to stand up for what they know is right? Well, what's that going to take? I'll tell you what it's going to take. 
Number one, it's going to take some courage on your part because you're going to run into stuff that you've never dealt with. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I, when I say I was a kid, I guess 14, 15, I read Acts chapter 9, verse 22. Now, Acts chapter 9, verse 7. It's the uh, conversion of Saul. Saul's on the road to Damascus. He is seeing Jesus. And then right there in verse 7, I think it is, it says that the men who were with him saw the... Uh, the men who were with him heard the voice but saw no one. So, if you were just to look right there at that text, it's in chapter uh, 9, verse 7, I think, right there. Did they hear the voice of the Jesus talking? Well, that's what the text says. It says, yeah, they did. Well, if you go to 22, verse 9, it says when Paul is recounting his own story, it says, and the men who were with me did not hear the voice of him who talked to me. Now, when I was 14, I was rattled by that. I thought, how can this be right? I don't recall ever having a discussion with anyone asking them how that could work. Number one, I don't remember anybody ever saying, you know, the, lots of people accuse the Bible of having contradictions. Here's something that they say. Here's why they're not. Here's how you can think through it yourself. I don't remember class on it. We, we just didn't have those much ever. Number two, that little piece of doubt nagged me for years and years and years. And I thought, how can that be? I don't understand. How can that be? That right here it says they heard it. Right here it says they didn't. This says they heard it. I don't know. I still believe God, but I don't know. Okay. I guess I didn't resolve that until I was probably 22 years old. And the reconciliation of that is the easiest thing that you have ever seen in your whole life. The word here is often used to have several different meanings. When Jesus Christ said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, what's that mean? Let him understand. It didn't mean let him detect the vibrations of my voice into his eardrum. It means he who has ears to hear, let him understand it. Does the word hear sometimes mean understand? Yeah. Son, did you hear me? What do you think my dad meant when he said, son, did you hear me? <laughs> did you think he meant, hey, did you detect the uh, vibrations from my voice to yours? No. Did you understand enough what I said for you to incorporate that into your next behavior? Because I want to make sure so that when you don't do exactly what I ask you to do, I will feel justified in punishing you. That's what my dad was saying. Son, did you hear me means, did you understand what I'm saying? Now, does the word hear sometimes mean understand? Yeah. Does the word hear sometimes mean to detect a sound? Yes. Do you know that if you were reading it in Greek, you would have never even had a problem? Because in Acts chapter 9, it shows, okay, this right here actually just means to detect a sound. In Acts 22, the word has just a very subtle difference that the Greek readers would have understood meant to understand what a person is hearing. So it's kind of like, basically, the men, I heard that. But if you were to ask them, hey, did you hear what was said? They would say, no, we didn't hear it. What do you mean you didn't hear it? You just said you did hear it. No, we didn't understand it. Now, folks, that nagged me for 10 years. It didn't have to. It needed an explanation that simple. So the question is, do you have a program or a system by which you have analyzed what your young people are going to be hit with when they leave and you've prepared them to deal with that? Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You're not going to be able to answer every single one of their questions. 
Uh, just like, I, I mean, I got out of Freed Harmon, had gone through all kinds of Christian evidence classes, etc., and had never heard that Jesus copied other people. Argument. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is giving them some answers and saying, this is how you think through others. And I'll tell you why I think some of us are afraid. Because we have done. Because deep down, if you were to ask us, why do I really believe the Bible is the Word of God? You know, we've had some of those here and here nagging little doubts in our mind. And we just have never dealt with them. We've never pulled them up and said, hey, I'm going to solve this. And you know why we haven't? We haven't dealt with them. Because, now listen to me. Because some of us, I think, are afraid of what we might find. We're afraid we just might find something that does radicalize. Are you? You afraid of that? I'll tell you what's been so very exciting to me. I started this discussion off talking about debates. And here's why I wanted that to be a part of this discussion. Actually, here's why it's come into this. The more that I have the opportunity that God gives me to stand up and defend New Testament Christianity against unbelief, the more I realize it's the only sound philosophical system in the world. When I watch unbelievers debate people who consider themselves Christians but are off on several ideas, for instance, like a Calvinism, Unbelievers rip Calvinism to shreds, and rightly so. And those people who call themselves Christians who are standing up trying to defend Calvinism, they can't do it. You know why? Because it's not New Testament Christianity. Those people who stand up and say, well, yeah, the earth could be billions and billions of years old, and the Big Bang could be true, and they call themselves Christians, and they're trying to defend those ideas. The unbelieving world rips those ideas to shreds. You know what the unbelieving world, they haven't even dealt with, they're not even prepared to deal with, and they can't mess with it, they can't touch it? New Testament Christianity. It's the only defensible philosophical framework that they can't hurt. And when you instill in your kids that there's nothing to be afraid of from unbelief, that you know that they're out there, here's what they're going to tell you, and here's how you need to deal with it. Well, then you're going to get kids like, like this guy that called us from one of our Christian schools. He was at a Christian university, and you know, we think, oh, hey, we're sending him off to a Christian university. It just so happens that most of the time, the, I, I, get, I get calls to go and speak at public schools. They say, hey, you can come in, you can speak for two hours on anything that you want to in this public school, and you can pass out any book that you want. I go in for an hour for the third and fourth grade and an hour for the fifth and sixth grade and I tell them anything I want for an hour and then I give them a book that backs up everything that I say and they shake my hand and are excited that I was there. Some of the Christian schools that I go into, I go in and I tell them that God created them in six literal 24-hour days and that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And the kids in our question and answer series, they said, well, how do you know that there's a God? Because and they've been, how do you know that the God of the Bible didn't use the Big Bang? And I leave from some of those Christian school settings being more beaten up than I do from the public school setting. What I'm telling you is, nobody's immune to this. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Do I send my kid to a Christian school? Absolutely positive. Mars Hill Bible School, I love it. I teach Bible up there, teach the seniors and sophomores, and do I think there are great things going on at Christian schools? Positively. Do I hope that my kids go to a Christian university? Yes. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying if you think your kids are going to be immune to the attacks on their faith because you sent them to a Christian school, it's not going to happen. If you send that young person off and you have trained that young person to defend his faith and a professor stands up in class and says, hey, the Bible isn't right here and here and here and this is what it actually is, the truth. And that young man respectfully says, no, sir, that's not true. I'd like to stand up and defend my position. And then he calls us at Apologetics Press and he says, can you send me 25 books on this particular subject? I'm going to give one to every single one of my fellow students here. And we send him those 25 books. And he goes to the administration and asks them if they will allow us to come and speak on this subject. No, they don't. But... He's got the courage to give those books out and to stand firm for his belief and to stand up for what's right and say, that's not right. This is what the truth of the matter is here. Now, that's what we're trying to do. And so, the reason I think that you're seeing this kind of thing, apologetics, two times on a, a conference that is this short, just a weekend, is because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you didn't have to be able to say, there's not a Bible contradiction here, and here's why. You didn't have to be able to say, I know there's a God, and here are the scientific, historical, philosophical, and biblical reasons why. But now you do. And if we send them off unprepared, some of that blame, when they lose their faith, some of it is going to be on us. If we send them off prepared, we'll be like the watchman in Ezekiel. We blow the trumpet. We gave them the foundation they needed. And I'll guarantee you, if we start preparing these people, to these young people to stand up and firmly and powerfully defend their faith, what we're going to see is a surge in not just, hey, there's a God, the Bible's God's Word, but evangelism and everything else that's going to come that builds on the foundation of those fundamental beliefs. You guys have been a wonderful audience. I greatly appreciate it. I wanted to keep just a few minutes for any type of questions that you might have that I might can answer. You know, I have a simple rule for questions. You just ask me ones that I know, and that way we get along <laughs> pretty well. Works perfect. Uh, just informatively, we I've got a I've got a table of Apologetics Press material. Apologetics Press has been going now for 34 years. We are, I think, getting about 17 million page hits on our website this year. We've got a new app that if you were to download it has, let's say that there, somebody's got a alleged contradiction in Mark chapter 12, 1. The app, you can go to alleged contradictions, Mark 12, 1, and there'll be three articles or whatever that pops up on that particular idea. If you want the resources, we've got them on our website. We've got, basically everything we've got is free. Most of all our PDF books are there that you can download. You can watch any video we've ever done that's there. All of our debates, except the, no, all of our debates, two of them are on there for free. The recent, most recent one, we'll probably be uploading it for free, but you can get the DVD there. It was on YouTube. I don't know exactly where it went. I think it might still be there somewhere. And we got these materials. So, uh, one more, what I'd like you to understand is you don't have to do all this research. We've done a ton of it. You don't have to go through everything Bart Ehrman ever said, and if you're youth 
young lady was named Kaylee, and she's now sitting in Bart Ehrman's class. You don't have to read his whole book on New Testament to get an answer to his argument. We've got one of those. And you can check ours, read it, see if you think it's solid, and pass it on to her because we've done that research for you. So a lot of that you can get off our website. We've got a lot of those answers. The question would just be, you know, how are you going to incorporate that into your personal ministry? Because what we try to do is provide tools that you can use in your ministry. That's, that's our goal at, at AP. Now, I've let you ask questions. All right. You didn't even ask that question. I asked myself. Any questions? Yes. How do you recommend putting it into the How do I recommend putting it into the curriculum? I would recommend having at least maybe once a year, but maybe every two years, having a apologetics quarter. And what I would start, if I was going to do 7th through 12th grade, I would start with our book, Out Without. It's the basic, uh, why you know there's a God, how you know the Bible is God's word, how you know Jesus Christ is God's son, what's that mean to me? We get down there to, okay, if you do this, 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 and this, well, then what's that mean to you, etc. So I would just use Out Without. It comes with a video series. If you want to do the video, they're about 25 minutes long each. You can play the video, and then after the video, say, okay, we've got 15 minutes of discussion. What do y'all think about that? Also, I think what's very important is to say, all right, we're going to do a, a class on the Bible being inspired. Have you guys heard things from other people, from your peers, accusing the Bible not being inspired? Have you ever been reading it and thought you found a, a contradiction? What, what do you think about this? And unless you kind of open it up and let them talk about it, you're not going to get the Kyle Butt at 14 who has here and here being a problem and he doesn't know how to fix it. So you open up and say, hey, this is, we're told up and there's no bad question. But what do you think about the Bible inspiration? No, so I make it very uh, interactive and try to get them to offer up as much of what they thought as possible. It's a good question. And I'll tell you what lots of people have been doing. Uh, taking the debate, watching 20 minutes of it, and then saying, okay, guys, what would you say if he said this? Watch another 20 minutes in next class. Okay, what would you say if he said this? Kind of going through it because debates, uh, it gets their attention a little better sometimes. And they, they see that this is real phase of unbelief. I mean, this really is going on here. It's a good question. Kind of have some statistics about college professors in the public realm, you know, like 80%. Right. What about, do you have any statistics that say, these people were involved in a youth program, and then after they completed their college in that setting, they then themselves were an atheist. Do you have any statistics on that? No. Uh, that would be good to have. I've never seen any. You know, of course, I've seen the statistics about, hey, when they come out of a youth group and they go into the world, the ones who come back to church, etc., you know, basically we've heard that you're losing four to five out of every ten of those you're only retaining 50 to 60% of those. But just as far as going into unbelief, never seen any stats on that. You know, I've got some personal stories of some of my good friends who grew up doing mission work with, etc. Come to find out they don't believe in God anymore. Just, you know, dumb doubt it. That, I mean, they sat right next to me and converted people in the Bahamas, and now they just don't believe in God anymore. But as far as stats, I don't have anything. It'd be good. Kyle's going to the... 
the age difference. A seventh grader to a twelfth grader. You know, out of grade school. Sure. Start up with junior high. What do you progress to? I mean, the seventh and eighth graders, their, their mindset is far, far different than the ninth and twelfth graders. What do you think? How do you, how do you approach that? I mean, you well, with some questions with the young Yeah, and I will tell you what uh, my experience has been. And this is just, my experience has been, let's say you, in fact, I could take out with doubt right now and be talking to a class my age and say, okay, guys, you need to know the basic, uh, you need to know the basic arguments for the existence of God. And as I start explaining the evolutionary teaching that these guys are doing, et cetera, I'm going to have, if I have 10 people my age group, lots of them never have really given it a whole lot of thought. They haven't interacted with unbelief much. And so they're going to say, okay, yeah, those are good. And boom, out of 10 of them, seven of them, it's very elementary, and they believe the Bible. They don't really know why you need to even be doing this. And so, boom, they move on. But three of them out of the seven out of the ten, rather, are going to, their eyes are going to light up and they're going to say, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. we got a person at work that does that. Do, do, do. Uh, how do you show them that Jesus is the Son of God? And so to me, it's almost like the ones who are more interested in it, then you take them to the next level. Like, I've got a 1,200-word chapter on the inspiration of the Bible. Okay? Now, that's going to do it for... 60-70% of the people and they're going to say I've never had I've never had a run-in with it. okay great now 20-30% are going to say the inspiration Bible so you say it's got predictive prophecy in here what give me an example of predictive prophecy okay then boom you take them to our next level behold the word of God where there's a, a whole 6,000 words on the prophecy of Tyre and you say okay you want a real example okay right here so to me, it's a, well, and I say that because when I've tried to take the real examples into the average class, the average class, I said, right. oh yeah, you just told me 35 minutes on the prophecy attire. Okay, yeah, I don't really need to know it. But the three or four that really want to know, well, they, I mean, they're zoomed in. So it's almost to me like you give them the basics, and then the ones that are interested, you take them to the next level. That's a really good question. wrong idea that's ever been foisted on the human population. The idea that there was nothing and that nothing popped into something that was so tiny that then exploded into the entire universe is illogical to the highest degree. I say that to say no one is ever an unbeliever because of the evidence. There's always something else. Always. Now, what we do as apologists is take away what they're saying it is in the hope that they'll see what it really is. And what I mean by that is, just like a, a person who is denominational and does not believe in the proper New Testament plan of salvation. Now, there's a reason that they don't. 
And it's not because the Bible isn't clear about it. It's not because it's because there's something that they're trying to hold on to more than the truth in the text. Now, what we do is say, well, here's what the Bible says here. Here's what. So we're trying to take away from them the excuses they're using for saying this is what I believe because the Bible says it. No, that's not why you believe it because the Bible says this. So getting back to your question, every single example of unbelief is founded on something other than, hey, man, I just follow the evidence. This is where I got That's never the case. And what I've seen most of the time is, you know, a college kid, buddy of mine, was saying, here's what happens. People go to college, and they have a belief in God. Strong belief, it's, they say it's a 10 right here. They know that there's a God. But they have a desire to have sex and drink and do all kinds of stuff that is going on in college life, and that desire is an 8. But the belief in God, that God doesn't want them to, is a 10, and so this desire being an 8, the belief in God trumps the desire to do all that stuff. Then they go sit in a professor's class, and the professor says, you sure there's a God? And they start thinking, hmm. And it adds just enough doubt to drop that 10 down to about a 7. And then their desire to party is an 8. And so, boom, they all start partying. And instead of saying, I'm partying because I want to, they say, hey, if there's no God, I can do what I want. And so their desire to sin trumps their belief in God that has been put just enough doubt on so they just go simple. And what I've seen most of the time is exactly like you're saying. You know, I sat, I got an email from a guy, and uh, well, it was from his mom, and she said, hey, I want you to talk to my son. He's now an unbeliever. And I said, okay, be glad to. Uh, give me his email or whatever. She said, all right, he's out in California. Here's his email. And so I start interacting with this mom and this kid. Oh, come to find out he's out in California living with his girlfriend, doing all kinds of stuff, and now conveniently he's an unbeliever. Well, why is he an unbeliever? Because he wants to live with his girlfriend. He wants to do what he's doing out in California. And so it's just convenient to say, if I don't believe in God, then God can't tell me what to do. So just about every example of, well, every example is not based on the evidence. And most of it's based on a simple life. But here's, I, I say that to say, you can't just go up to a person and say, you know why you don't believe in God? Because you're sleeping with your girlfriend and you want to do that more than, than you want God. That's, that's a real reason. So let's just cut to the chase. No, what you've got to do is say, Oh, you said that you don't believe in God because the evidence isn't there. Well, what did you? And you deal with the evidence to take those reasons away from them in the hopes that they'll see. Okay, hold on just a second. Those reasons aren't legit. I don't believe in God because, and then they get to the real reason. Great question. Uh, our kids are being fed the, the views of atheism from the age of, of first grade up. That's right. And uh, I guess my question is. How do we get this material to be serious to these kids at that age? You know, if, if the atheists are getting them at that age, and we're finally getting them at the, at the teenager level, right. or the adult level, we've already got a problem. That's right. Well, let me tell you what, uh, just give me, we have material that goes from age two years old up to the highest adult you can get. We've got kids' books, etc. There is a congregation in Killen. Kill you guys. They're Killen. They have a program whereby they order our books, depending on age level. And one time a year, each one of the kids gets a specific book that we deal with. And then on their birthday, they get another one. And so they are constantly putting this material about God, the existence of God, science works perfectly with the Bible, etc., into their hands from the time they are 
you're looking at five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know exactly when it starts, but uh, you know, I think it's maybe second, third, fourth grade on up. And so if we had, uh, and I know lots of you guys are youth workers and you don't really deal with them until they get up to you, but whoever's doing their, in fact, you know, there at, uh, at the congregation where I go, Stony Point, we use the Explorer series lessons that we put out for fifth and sixth graders. And so they're getting hit with this in fifth and sixth grade as far as getting the material they need. So really, what you just almost need to do is find the people who are educating them in your churches at younger ages and say, oh, hey, we've got material for that, and we can put it in there. But that's a, that's a great question. Great question. Not, as a, not as a plug to AP, but their Discovery Magazine. Get Discovery Magazine? Yeah, Discovery Magazine, if you, if you remember, those of us who are older, the old highlights for children. It's, it's, it's much better than that, but it's written on a grade level where the smallest of kids in your congregation will be able to see what these things are. And AP offers congregational, like bulk subscriptions to it. Don't you see That's right. Like Twitter or something yeah. like that. Every kid in your congregation can get one for pennies. Yeah. And it's something that it, it's a great tool for visitors also at your congregation. Right. Kids come in, they get this colorful thing that's got all the apologetics, age appropriate, they're being able to take it back to their family, their friends, hey, I visited this church, look at this about whatever the article may be about some animal or a star or something like that. So right. look into Discovery Magazine also for the younger kids. Appreciate that. What you got, Lon? Two or three times a year, we would just have a special topic that we want to do in class, we want to expose the kids to, and we'd say, hey, we're going to do a special trip, we're going to do a special retreat, we're going to do whatever. And if you want to go on that retreat, Here's a research product. Here's a, a, a poster contest. Here's something you need to do to turn in. That's your registration for this trip to Six Flags, the Rathiel Cove, or go to the Natural History Museum. And the kids do that. Uh, we did a thing on uh, direct command apostolic example of necessary efforts and said, here's a notebook on the basics. If you want to go to the last leaders' convention this year, want you turn one of these in, you're registered. That qualifies you to go last. Wow. And so we just basically would do little things that said, will you do this, and we'll celebrate this trip. And right. then it, it, it makes them do some things on their own people just to not sit in a class and might light a fire so they become more lost. Yeah, absolutely. Great idea. Do that. Now let me uh, say one thing. On our table at the AP table, as you can come right in, there are some folders that have samples of everything we've got, basically. They've got samples of Discovery, they got samples of our, our tracks, and they've got new DVDs, samples of all our new DVDs that we've just put out. So grab one of those folders, it's got everything that basically we've got as far as, we'll show you what we do there and all the tools that you can use. What you got there? Kind of one of the basic things that on our children is, they gotta have good parents that back all this up too. Absolutely. I, I think that's one of the things that in our homes, if our homes are, are buying into this, then it works. Right. That's right. So, you know, hey, if you want your kids to know, go talk to their parents and say, hey, what are you doing? To, are you reading these books at home? Have you seen this? Because you guys know, and I think with the in the last five years, youth ministry has really opened its eyes to the fact that this is family ministry. This is if you want to help the kids, then you're going to have to get the parents involved, et cetera. And you guys know that a lot more than I do. Uh, one more thing, Greg Titwell told me to shamelessly plug my book on giving that Gospel Advocate puts out. Now, I hate to do that, but I told him I would. And so there is a, the truth of the matter is I love preaching about giving. 
and it's one of my favorite subjects to preach about and the material that I wrote with John Barber, the Gospel Advocate has and they published and I told Greg, 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 I don't do this for many people but I will do that for you. So there you go. That's it. Thank you guys for coming to class and you know you guys, one, I want to get Brian up here. Let me, let me say one thing before any of you guys go anywhere. It ain't about the jacket. Well, <laughs> I don't have words for that jacket. <laughs> Uh, let me say, let me really do say what I, I think you see what Brian is trying to do him and the other guys on the board here he saw a need in the brotherhood and this is the very first one of these but I would just encourage you to get behind this when you sit at David Shannon's feet and get to hear a sound solid lesson that encourages you to mature your kids up to where you're wanting them to be there's not another youth conference like this in the Brotherhood that you can feel comfortable telling your elders, I know what I'm getting, to my knowledge. And I want to, I know that this is the first time that they've done it and they're working out some bugs and lots of stuff is outstanding and great. And I want you guys to see really what potential this has and to get behind it and push it because I think it's a really, really good thing that for years and years to come can make a lot of difference in the church. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.